This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. So this semester, as we're gathering, we are reading the Minor Prophets together during this time. And the Minor Prophets are these small books. They're called Minor because they're short. They're the 12 books at the end of the Old Testament. And we're taking one each week and we're studying it together and we're talking about the Prophets book and then some of the major themes in that book. And the reason why we're studying the Minor Prophets together is, uh, I've said this every week, but first, because they're life-challenging. They can actually change the way we live. And they're graphic. The Minor Prophets contain some of the scariest warnings in Scripture. And they also contain some of the most beautiful promises. And there are these quick, vivid snapshots. Uh, Rather than a long, boring documentary, there are these these quick little pictures. And that's why we are calling our series Postcards from the Edge. Uh, these, These quick pictures of... Uh, of the edge of this expanse of God's holiness and man's sinfulness and God's response and his grace and his love. So, so far uh, this semester, we've looked at the books of Amos and Jonah and Hosea and Habakkuk. And tonight we're going to look at the book of Joel. I just want to say that um, in all of this, I've gotten a lot of help from other campus ministers who've studied this and preached this before me and really thankful to be able to stand on the shoulders of others who've, who've um, taught on this material and worked through it. Just to say, uh, none of this is original to me. It's all a gift from others. And so um, this is usually the time when I give you some historical background about the book as we talk about Joel. But in the case of Joel, most scholars have no idea when he lived or when he wrote. We don't know whether he wrote early on before the Minor Prophets or around the time of Hosea and Amos or after the exile, the time of Obadiah, who we're going to hear about next week. Um, This lack of clear historical information about Joel doesn't make the book untrue, but rather uh, it's, it's Joel's intention to focus our attention on his timeless content, that the things that he is saying to Israel, to God's people, to us, is, um, is something that is, is true throughout time. So what is the book of Joel about? Well, the, the prophets we've studied before camp out in ideas like injustice and grace and redemption and happiness. And Joel's main theme is repentance. Joel gives us a beautiful picture of true repentance, its urgency, its depth, its power to restore that God uses our repentance to bind back together what sin tears apart. So tonight we're going to study a key passage in Joel that describes what human repentance should look like and then what God's restoration always looks like. So if you will turn with me in your Bibles, it's actually here on the screen. Um, If you've got a Bible, it's uh, um, Joel is... You find the Psalms and then you flip to the right and it's right after Hosea, right before Amos. It's the second minor prophet. Um, Or if you have it on your phone, you can open there. Uh, We're going to read Joel 2, verses 12 through 27. Joel 2, verses 12 through 27. This is God's word for us tonight. It is trustworthy and true and he gives it to us in love. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, rend your hearts and not your garments. 
Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his chamber and the bride, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. The the enemies were coming from the north. This is not talking about Yankees. Enemies came from the north into Judah. His rear guard will be driven into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for your abundance, for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh, there's this New York Times article that's been making the rounds in uh, this past week. It was published on Friday, and it's called The Empty Religion of Instagram. How did influencers become our moral authorities? It's written by a woman named Lee Stein. And um, in this article, which uh, I highly commend reading. It's fascinating. And she talks about her experience as a secular millennial seeking spiritual counsel and entertainment from social media influencers. Um, and she shows how social media influencers are actually falling into the mold of televangelists, the work that they're doing, promising people transformation or, uh, or change in their lives and entertaining at the same time is just what televangelists have been doing since the 1950s, except now it's in a secular form and it's in a smaller screen. And she says that the life that they're selling doesn't deliver on what it promises. And as a secular person, she believes, she says that she's generally impervious to religion. But then she says this. She writes, during the pandemic, the only times I've cried have been when religion has punctured the bubble that I live in. I cried when the the Reverend Raphael Warnock spoke at John Lewis's funeral. I cried when Garth Brooks sang Amazing Grace a cappella at the Biden inauguration. She goes on and says, I've hardly prayed to God since I was a teenager, 
But the pandemic has cracked open inside me a profound yearning for reverence, humility, and awe. I have an overdraft on my outrage account. I want moral authority from someone who isn't selling a memoir or calling out her enemies on social media for her publicity. Left-wing secular millennials may follow politics devoutly, she writes, but the influencers we've chosen as our moral leaders aren't challenging us to ask the fundamental questions that leaders of faith have been wrestling with for thousands of years. Why are we here? Why do we suffer? Why? What should we believe in beyond the limits of our puny selfhood? The whole economy of Instagram is based on our thinking about ourselves, posting about ourselves, working on ourselves. There's this chasm between the vast scope of our needs and what influencers can provide. We're looking for guidance in the wrong places. Instead of helping us to engage with our most important questions, our screens might be distracting us from them. Maybe we actually need to go to something like church. So I want you to imagine that you, uh, you meet this woman um, and she, she sounds really thoughtful and intelligent and curious. I think meeting her would be, would be really fascinating. I'd love to ask her questions. And, but imagine meeting her and let's say you're, you're stuck in an elevator together. I guess people still ride elevators during the pandemic. You meet Miss Stein and you're in this elevator and she, she gets to know you and she asks you, she finds out that you're a Christian or that you've spent time with Christians. Um, and she says, so what is Christianity about, all about? What, what is the one thing that defines a Christian? How would you answer that question? Someone asked you that. What's the one thing that defines a Christian? How would you answer that? What one thing do you do or don't do? What's the one thing that you say or don't say that shows the world that you're a Christian? Maybe it's that you act nice, that you say please and thank you, you try to help people. Or um, is it that you don't party, that you would never be caught dead with a red solo cup? Or um, is it that you're emotionally sold out, that you're always thrilled about Jesus and how epic life is? Or maybe the one thing is your language. You don't cuss, you're always positive about people, or maybe with your language, uh, you talk like you're always carrying around a theological dictionary. Maybe it's your politics. Maybe you're a Republican who cares about unborn babies, or you're a Democrat who cares about the poor. You know, I, I find it interesting that RUF occasionally makes its way onto fake warist um, because it's what we're made fun of for shows what our classmates think we are. Um, what you're made fun of for shows what your classmates think the one thing that it defines, what it, what the one thing that defines what it means to be, to be a Christian. So Martin Luther had a different idea of what Christianity was all about. Luther founded a, mo- a movement uh, designed to get back to the core of Christianity. He started what would later be known as Protestantism because he was tired of people centering their Christian life on fads or on formalism or on bad theology. So in 1517, he famously nailed his 95 theses to the front door of a church in Wittenberg. And it was sort of like having his post um, pinned to the top or retweeted on a university account. And do you know what his first thesis said? What Luther said Christianity is first and foremost about? Repentance. He said it was about repentance. This is what he wrote 500 years ago. Luther said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. I love the way that one pastor, Joe Novenson, fleshes this out. This is what he says. He says, repentance is not an act. It's a lifestyle. 
It's not an occasional neighborhood we visit on a bad day. It's an address. We live on the corner of the streets, repentance and broken. Repentance is not holding our breaths. It's finally breathing. I want to read that again. Um, He says, repentance is not an act. It's a lifestyle. It's not an occasional neighborhood we visit on a bad day. It's an address. We live on the corner of the streets, repentance and broken. Repentance is not holding our breaths. It's finally breathing. And Luther's definition of repentance changed our understanding of Christianity forever. Why? Why is repentance so powerfully important to the Christian life? Novenson again nails it. He says, we believe greatness on any level equals doing the most right and the least wrong for the longest amount of time under the largest amounts of circumstances. But greatness in the realm of the Christian gospel is actually being the biggest, fastest, deepest repenter because Jesus's righteousness is enough. Repentance is what the Christian life is all about. The depth, quickness, and frequency of our repentance is what we as Christians are to showcase, what we're to be public about. We don't have to take Joe Novenson's word for it or even Martin Luther's word for it because here in the Bible and specifically in the book of Joel, we're told just how central repentance is. Repentance is what we are to blow the trumpet over, what we are to gather people together over. And I know repentance is a churchy word. Some of you are asking, what exactly is repentance? Why is it so important? And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. The passage that we read answers these questions. And it says that repentance starts with the heart and it moves outward into the whole life. We repent because it's what God uses to renovate us. So we're going to look at Joel and outline has two points. First, what is repentance? And second, why should we do it? So if you're taking notes, verses 12 through 17, what is repentance? Verses 18 through 27, why should we do it? So first, repentance, what is it? So um, give you a definition of repentance from verse 12. Repentance is returning to God with all of your heart. In this first section, verses 12 through 17, Joel gives us this graphic and urgent explanation of repentance. And from these verses, I want you to see four things about repentance. It's communal, it's specific, it's life-changing, and it's convicting. So first, it's communal. Repentance is a community project. Now, of course, it's individual. Returning our hearts to God is something that God calls each of us individually to do. It's individual, but repentance is also communal. In verse 12, God is addressing the people of God. He's addressing the church. He's addressing RUF, not just Joel and his buddies. And we see this in verses 15 to 17, where God, through Joel, calls for a sacred assembly of people and a congregation set apart by repentance. And he calls out all these different groups of people. You see the elders, children, infants, brides, bridegrooms, priests. He's calling out everyone to gather around this project of communal repentance. And the Bible understands that, yes, our sin is individual, but when a group of individuals engage together in a particular sin, then that sin gets worked into the fabric of society. And so while we need to repent individually, we also need to repent communally of a sin that we've participated in as a community. Seeing sin as a corporate responsibility isn't Marxist. Joel was writing thousands of years before Marx. So a question that we must ask ourselves What would it look like for us to repent as a community, to own our sins and do right by others and God as a group, not just in private prayer? So repentance is communal, 
And second, repentance is specific. Repentance owns particular sins particularly, and it moves towards a particular God. We see this in the urgency of verse 12. It says, yet even now, and it's also its directness, return to me, God says. God is calling us to examine our lives recently, this week, today, even now. And the question for us, and when, when is the last time that you or I repented? What's the last thing that you repented of specifically? And God specifies that repentance involves returning to him. Verse 13, return to the Lord your God. While we sin against others and against ourselves, the Bible is clear that God is always the offended party when it comes to our sin. So when you repent, know that your sin is against God, and so you're repenting to God. But know that God is waiting for you at the end of the road, not to punish you, not to put you back to work, but to throw a feast for you and remind you that you're his beloved child. Whether your next act of repentance is your first or your 500th, God is waiting for you with eagerness to restore you. Repentance is communal, it's specific, and third, it's life-changing. Meaning, in repentance, we change the direction that we're moving towards. Verse 12, this word, return. We turn around and we begin again. I was thinking about this idea of returning and realizing how awkward it feels when I turn around on the sidewalk. I don't know if you feel this. If you're, if you're walking to class and you realize that you forgot something and everyone's walking the same direction and you have to you have to turn around in the middle of a crowd. That's really awkward for me. I don't know if that feels awkward for you. Um, but it feels awkward to acknowledge that you've done something wrong or you've forgotten something and you need to turn around. In military terms, this is an about face, a pivot, a new direction for battle. Repentance is a retreat from self and evil and a turn and a charge towards God and good. So a question for you to consider. When you're confronted with your bad intentions... When you see your selfishness and your pride in your own heart, what do you do? Do you excuse it away? Or do you own it and give it to Jesus, trusting that he is turning our evil into his good? Repentance is communal, it's specific, it's life-changing, and it's full of conviction. In the language of verse 12, God calls us to return to him with all of your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. This is saying that true repentance requires conviction of sin. This means that repentance is not just about our actions. It's actually not about our actions. It's about our hearts. We don't just regret gossip. We're heartbroken over it. And then in verse 13, Joel says, rend your hearts and not your garments. He's saying that it's not just that we wear a frown on the outside, but actually grieve on the inside. I want you to listen to the way that one commentator puts it. They write, God desires that sinners sense their guilt and weep within for what their sins have done to defile themselves, to destroy their neighbors, and to dishonor Christ. When we experience this poverty of spirit, we're on the right road to everlasting enrichment, enrichment from the treasury of divine grace. Okay, but how can we possibly combine all four pieces of repentance? How can we repent as a community specifically with life change and conviction? I think this is one of those questions that we should consider together as a community, that we should be discussing and figuring out in small groups or over dinner or in your dorm or your apartment. Um, one, one image that comes to mind for me for this is when I was in college, I read a book called Blue Like Jazz by a guy named Don Miller. 
And in that book, he, he shares a story that gives a hint, a hint of what biblical repentance might look like on a college campus. And he tells the story of setting up reverse confessionals at his college. He and a few Christian friends, he went to Reed College, which is a small college in Portland, and they decided to set up a confession booth at this all-night rave on campus. But instead of having people confess their sins to them, um, Don and his friends confessed their sins to anyone who would enter the booth. They did that, he says, as followers of Jesus. They said things like, we have not been very loving. We have been bitter, and for that we are sorry. And so this is what he did. He sat in a confessional booth while there's a rave going on. This is the 90s. There were raves back then. Had a rave going on. And he acted out his repentance on behalf of the Christian community in himself. He asked for forgiveness for not feeding the poor and the sick. Asked for forgiveness for, loving, for not loving those who persecute him. For mixing personal politics with Jesus. For carrying agendas instead of Jesus into conversations about Christianity. Now, doing this exact thing at Wake might feel a bit unoriginal or staged and performative, but through it, we get this idea that confessing our sins publicly is a powerful way to say what Christianity is all about. Look at Joel. This is what God is asking us to blow our trumpets and gather folks over for, to repent. It would be like all the alarms going off in the dorms on campus and the bell ringing and calling everyone on campus up to the upper quad to hear the confessions of the Christians at Wake. And what might we confess? What would we have to repent? We might say something like this. Oh Lord, we have sinned against you and against our neighbor. We have let the pressures of Wake Forest dictate how we are to live, not your command to love you with our whole heart and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We have lusted after and not loved one another. We have taken what is not ours to take and given what is not ours to give. We have lied, we have cheated, we have stolen. We are lazy in prayer and strategic in our sin. We spend more time with Netflix than we do reading your word. We would rather be comfortable than compassionate. We forsake those who are down and out so that we can become people who are up and in. You tell us to love our neighbors ourselves, but we put our resume before everything else, excusing our pride as competitiveness. We have eagerly pursued our secret addictions to pornography. We've let porn shape the way we view our women, pressuring them into a sexual mold that reduces them to their body parts, not valuing them because they bear the image of God. We have dressed as provocatively as we can, calling it innocent flirting, dressing our bodies to drive boys crazy because we know we can. We've been drunk enough times to be called alcoholics. We excuse it because it's the only way we know how to be 19 and cope with the pressure of Wake Forest. We turn to the bottle or to the can before we turn to you. We have judged those who are not like us. We have excluded those who cannot help us advance socially. We have been silent on issues of racial injustice, refusing to call the church to recognize the image of God in all people. If the world could see our hearts and our thoughts, it would openly shame us, for there is no health in us. We have been angry with you for the way our lives have gone. We have doubted your goodness to us. We are not the men we so desperately want others to think that we are. We are not the women we so long to have someone notice that we are. Our sins and iniquities have gone above our heads. They are a burden too heavy to bear. I'm tempted to say that we don't need to make any more judgments on this campus to the watching non-Christian world until we've communicated to them that we actually believe what I've just said. So why do this? 
Why practice repentance? What would motivate someone to do this? What, what motivated Don Miller to confess his sins to others? Why are we to repent personally and publicly? Joel gives us three answers to this question. The motivation, the why, is sin's consequences, God's characters, and God's restoration. So first, sin's consequences. The first part of Joel, up until the part that we read, tells us we repent because of the raging consequences of our sins. In chapter 1, Joel paints this graphic picture of God's just judgment on the sins of his people as a swarming locust cloud, a locust swarm coming to destroy everything that it touches. And then in chapter 2, he pictures God's just judgment as a savage army on the march. And both of these images together are announcing in the most intense imagery possible that the sin of God's people is really bad and it deserves God's just judgment. Now, here's the thing. The reason that many of you do not have a sense of God's forgiveness, a real lived experience of his grace, is because you don't believe that you have anything to be forgiven for. Joel uses this graphic imagery of locusts devouring everything they come in contact with. He uses it as smelling salts to wake us up to how bad our sin is. Now, if you're thinking, my sin's not that bad, the Bible shows us most clearly how bad our sin is on the cross because Jesus' death is the greatest possible indictment on the human race. That's what your sin deserves, and he took it for you. But the fear of sin's consequences will not lead us to repent, at least not for the long haul. Joel draws us into repentance not just by warning us of sin's consequences, but by describing God's character to us. Look at verse 13 with me. He says that he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Here's what Joel is saying. He's saying that repentance isn't only turning away from God's punishment, from sin's punishment, but it's turning towards God. Why? Because of who God is. This word um, in verse 13, steadfast love, is this Hebrew word hesed. And it's a special word that's used to describe God's love, his covenant love, his faithful love, the love that he has for us um, that's indestructible. And I think the best definition of this word, the best translation of this word is in the kid's book, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which isn't just for kids, um, where it describes it this way. It, It says that this word translated, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. So what does this mean? This means that repentance is a gift, that this is the only way into God's love. God is saying that he will always receive you when you come to him through the wide open doors of his mercy in Christ. So how do you enter into God's grace? It's simple. Come to him with open hands. I was talking uh, to a student about this yesterday and saying it's often when we come to God, we come to God with closed fists. We come to him holding tightly onto the things that we think are most important, unwilling to turn our hearts to him. Sometimes we even hide our fists behind our back. We're, we're unwilling to acknowledge to ourselves the things that we're, un, that we're refusing to give to him. But God says that his grace and mercy is found when you come to him with open hands. Like the hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. And when we speak of God's heart, um, we're talking about the spring-loaded tilt of his affections, his natural bent. 
the regular flow of who he is and what he does. And his natural disposition is the photo negative of our natural fallen disposition. Here's what I mean by that. I think the reason why we're so terrified to open our hands with our lives, why we're so terrified to come to God in that posture is because we know um, how we would respond to others who came to us. People who, who wore out our forgiveness. People who walked all over our kindness. And God is the exact opposite of us in that. We think his patience is worn out. We think we have to earn his forgiveness. But God is infinitely compassionate, infinitely ready to forgive. He is magnetically drawn to you in your sin. And he desires to be with you and to be near you and to cleanse you. Which means, this means if you're not receiving forgiveness from him, it's entirely because we don't believe that he is who he said he is. He is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting over disaster. And he says this about himself over and over and over again in the Bible. He wants it to be explicitly clear that that is who he is. And so when he calls us to repent, he calls us to repent because of his character, because he longs to show us mercy. So why should we repent? Because of sin's consequences, God's character, and finally God's restoration. So simply put, repentance comes out of acceptance. It's only when our hearts believe that they're secure that they will freely repent. Right? It's only when you know the embrace of God that then you'll open your hands and give him the things um, that are yours to give to him. This is what the Apostle Paul says in the letter to the Romans. He says, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's Jesus' kindness, not his finger wagging. Um, or his raised fist that leads to repentance. It's his kindness that makes Jesus more desirable than sin. And this kind of Jesus is what makes us want to repent. He makes us want to do what he asks us to do, and he makes us want to not do what he asks us not to do. Verses 18 to 27 are an extended meditation on the rewards of repentance. And simply put, the reward of repentance is restoration. Now, I think some of these, these metaphors are lost on us because most of us don't come from war-torn ag- agrarian communities. But this is who Joel is talking to, so this is the imagery that he uses. And that's why the pictures we're given in this section are of God driving our enemies into the desert and the sea and giving an abundance of grain and oil and wine and livestock and figs and early rains. Um, those are the images. And those don't necessarily move us because we're not coming from war-torn agrarian places. Um, so let me give you a little closer to home illustration of, of restoration. Shoes. I talked to you about shoes. If you know me well, you know that I like shoes. And I've had a handful of pairs of, of shoes over the year that I have loved dearly and have completely worn out. Like soles completely worn through or have gotten to the point where I've had to glue the soles back onto the shoe. And what do you do with shoes that are worn out that you love? You can throw them away. Or you can take them to the cobbler, which I think is one of the most satisfying experiences. And I've got a great cobbler in town if you're interested. I just love saying cobbler. It's a great word. So what I do is I go to the cobbler and I bring him my stinky, worn out leather shoes held together by glue. And I'm pretty confident that they're ruined forever. And then the cobbler says, sure, I'll have them ready for you next week. 
And so I go back a week later and like magic, I have my shoes that were completely destroyed, but that are now, the leather is beautifully restored. New soles are stitched on and they're better than new because they're my shoes. So what does this have to do with God? In the words of Al Walters, God does not make junk and God does not junk what he has made. God loves what he's made and he wants to restore it. God's salvation, his rescue of me does not look like him throwing me away and buying a new and improved John 2.0. No, he restores me. He's committed to remaking and renewing me because God loves those who restore, who return to him. And along with this beautiful image of renewal, restoration implies an ugly negative, the toll of the consequences of sin. In the words of verse 25, what the swarming locust has eaten. And if we're honest, we don't have to look far to see what the locust is eating right now. And as I read to you that list, that litany, um, did you find yourself in that? The reality of, of what the locusts have eaten in our lives? I think one of the places that, that we experience this so, so much that we've grown numb to it is the pornography epidemic. Culturally, we've taken this God-given gift of marriage, taken sex, and we are selling it and using it and abusing it in an addictive and destructive rate. And the statistics tell the story. 25% of search engine requests are related to sex. 35% of downloads from the internet are pornographic. The average age of first exposure is 11. Over 60% of college guys look at pornography for five hours or more a week. 20% of college girls look at pornography for five hours or more a week. Five hours is a lot. And if we include those who look at less than five hours, the numbers of pornography viewing are much, much higher. I mean, it's safe to say that nearly all college men and half of college women struggle with pornography in some way or another. And this isn't even getting to the hookup culture and sex outside marriage. And my point here is not to shame everyone who, who's watching this, who struggles with porn. And it's not to pat on the back those few who look down on those, all those sinners. My point is Joel's point. God promises restoration. He can renew you. He can renew me. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. This is a promise to you in your sin. You need only to turn to him, to allow his healing wounds to work, to trust him to restore you. I want to end with a story. Um, tell you a story about Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in the Dallas area. He tells a story about when he was in college, he befriended this older single woman um, who had a child in one of his classes. Um, no, older single woman who had a child who was in one of his classes. And after a while, he invited this woman to a Christian conference with him. Um, and while they're at this conference, the, the, the speaker started talking about sex. And as he was beginning, he took out a single red rose and he handed it to someone in the front row and asked them to pass it around, to smell it, to touch it, to pass this rose around. And he, he proceeded to give a horrible, insensitive talk about sex. And then after, afterwards, the speaker asked for the rose back and someone gave him the rose and he, he picked it up. And you see that this rose, as he held it up, um, the stem was broken and it was worn out and the petals, most of them had fallen off. And so this guy is holding up this rose and the speaker asks, who wants this rose? Who would want a rose like this? And his point being that nobody would want something that is so broken, so used up sexually. No one would want someone that way. 
And as Chandler tells the story, he says that he kept looking at that rose and he looked back at his friend, the single mother, and he said that he wanted to shout at that man, do you know who wants that broken, beat up rose? Jesus wants the rose. Jesus wants the rose. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, with a God who abounds in steadfast love and kindness, no rose is too worn out. No human being is too broken to be restored. Friends, Joel is saying that yes, while your sin is bringing ruin to your life, God does not want to restore you, does not want to destroy you. He wants to restore you. And he does this through your repentance. This is an invitation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the the book of Joel um, with these startling images and this call from you to turn from our sin, from ourselves to you, because you are God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, I pray for my friends as they listen in. Lord, would you help them and show them your goodness? And would you lead us with open hands into repentance? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So hear this good word from his throne. May the love of God the Father and the grace of his Son our Savior Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you until that great day. Amen. Amen.